Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here if you're uh, visiting with us today. Uh, my name is Mike, and I'm the senior pastor here, and we are delighted to have you here. We are in uh, week number four of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as Steve had mentioned, Jesus' first uh, sermon. And so we have already spent time in the Beatitudes in week number one, uh, statements uh, that really speak to the character of the Christian, uh, that you, uh, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That kind of sets uh, the introduction to the sermon. Week number two talked about uh, the influence that we have as Christians, that you are salt, that you are light. And uh, last week, we really looked at God's authority inside of our lives, and in particular, Jesus his view and his relation to the Old Testament, that he's not come, in, come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so we mentioned the idea that even Jesus, who had all authority given in himself, still subjugated himself, still placed himself underneath the authority of Scripture. He didn't come to nullify it. Uh, he didn't come to bring a new religion, but he came to take religion and, make, and drive it deeper and more personally into who we are. That it's not just something that we address things on the outside, but it actually can get to the inside of who we are. And so uh, today we really shift, and we introduced this last week. For the next several weeks, we're going to be inside of a structure uh, that Jesus uses where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's going to contrast uh, the contemporary wisdom of the time, or even the misinterpretation of scripture. You've heard it said, but I say to you something different. And inside of that, there, there's a move, there's a shift from the external to the internal. That things aren't just about rules, but it's about the character. It's not just about the behavior that springs forth, but it's about the motive uh, and what's behind that. And so Jesus wants to take and, and drive things more to the inside of who we are. Now, that being said, we come to where Jesus begins. This is not my idea, this is Jesus' idea. And so today, uh, what says the middle of summer uh, nothing better than let's talk about anger and lust for a few minutes. And so um, if you're just joining us today for the first time, welcome to St. John's Church. Uh, this is not normally uh, a topic that we hit, but it is uh, certainly one that is applicable. And I wonder if there's something to the fact that Jesus begins here. Jesus begins uh, this new section, you've heard it said, but I say to you, maybe with things that he knows are going to grab people's attention, maybe things that he knows that people struggle with, maybe it's just you know, a place that Jesus just wants to drive right uh, uh, into the, the deepest part of who we are by going to the things that most people struggle with most. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse number 21. You have heard that it was said to people, to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders, murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be, may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, 
you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus begins here and, and talking about uh, beginning talking about the aspect of murder, but spends most of the time talking about anger. And in fact, for some of you, you got a little bit nervous because we've already taken the offering and you've already dropped your gift. And if any of you have anything against anybody, then you're going to go to hell. Amen. Let's go. But no, that, we, we, get, we get freaked out about this because you start reading and what's this mean? And who, who uses the word raka? That's just the term for contempt inside of, uh, inside of you know, the, the current day, inside of uh, the Greek language you know, that Jesus is talking about. Um, but he says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. So Jesus begins the you've heard it said, but I say to you, not with a myth, not with an old wives tale, not with a distortion, not with a cultural lie. He begins by jumping into commandment number six of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you know that the Ten Commandments are a pretty big deal. They're the big ten, the top ten. They're actually etched into stone given to Moses, brought down the hill and said, make sure the people know this. And Jesus is going to begin by saying, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. To which everybody there is saying, absolutely we've heard that it said, thou shalt not murder. Like, we don't murder. Anyone look around? Any murderers here? Like, we don't, we should be okay with this. We should be good. This should be an easy check off the box. Jesus is starting with the easy things. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. Check. Let's move on to point number two. But he says, but I want to say to you, not that that is wrong, but I want to take it again and push it to the inside of who you are, deeper, more personal, not just about your behavior, but about your motive. And so he says, but I want to say to you, anyone who has been angry is also subject to judgment. In fact, if you've used the word uh, contempt, if you've called someone a fool, if you've ever gone to church with your altar in your, or your gift in your hand and you've paraded it to the front and you look good and, and you're tie is straight because it's the second week in a row with a baptism uh, and, and everything is good but yet inside you are just full of hate and malice or you've wronged your brother who's sitting in the third row and you know that they're looking at you as you come up and everything looks straight and you got your, your, your gift and you're bringing it forward if there's something that's gone wrong Jesus says that's equivalent to murder and we believe Jesus because he's Jesus but there's a part of us that says no it's not because if inside of my mind you cut me off and I kind of hate you, that's different than me running into the back of your car and getting out and taking your life, right? There's a difference between somebody who is angry on the inside and somebody who cuts you off and expresses a gesture to you on the way by. Even further, a difference than somebody who commits road rage and kills somebody else. Wouldn't we rather just be angry than kill somebody. Wouldn't we rather somebody be angry at us than kill us? But Jesus is not speaking here to the, to the effect of that, because clearly murder is worse than just somebody having something against me. Uh, but what he wants to get at is this thing that he's trying to drive deeper and more personally in us. He says, don't be content just to be able to check off the box and say, because my outward actions that come with consequences are clean, then it means that I am clean on the inside. So he jumps right in with something that seems pretty straightforward. Let me just clarify here. Uh, perhaps you've read this as thou shall not kill or thou shall not murder. It, it's occurred both different ways. Both are correct. But inside of this, uh, Jesus here is, is not, and, and most scholars agree with the words that are used. He is not talking here about war, about the death penalty, about accidentally 
killing somebody. This is about that kind of cold-blooded, premeditated, intentional uh, taking of a life. It's not to say that the discussion about those things, about the death penalty, about war and just war and should there be war, or about what happens in a person's life when they accidentally even take a life, that there are consequences, and all three of those topics should be talked about, but that's not really what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5. But he's pushing it again to its origin, to the aspect of anger. You know what, what anger is. It's that thing that flares up within you. When you're wronged, when frustration builds, when there's resentment, when there's contempt, when you see something you don't like, that thing that kind of rises within you and not good things come out as a result of it. Not all anger is sin. Jesus got angry with the religious leaders and he turns over tables inside the temple. God inside of the Old Testament has a holy wrath that seems to come and seems to be justified and consistent with who he is in a character of holiness. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, be angry but do not sin. And so it's possible to have anger and to express it in a proper way, in a proper timing, and not be in sin. But he goes on to say, not only you need to deal with it, be angry but do not sin, but don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Meaning don't hold it, because you know that when we hold on to anger, it festers. In one of two ways, either we get more and more angry, or the next thing we come in contact with makes us instantly doubly angry. Or we begin to have a pity party, and we think, you know, I'm just the victim, and we develop this whole story inside of our mind of how we're the victim, and all these other perpetrators against us, how they deserve to be punished. Unresolved, undealt with anger only breeds more anger, more dysfunction, more hurt, more resentment, if we don't deal with it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that there, it's possible to have an anger of love, he called it. An anger of love, one that wishes no one any evil, one that is friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. Friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. This isn't some two-faced, I'm going to smile, but inside I really want to like rip off your head. You know, that's not one of those kind of things, but that's possible to actually look upon the person and see them as God sees them, and yet still be greatly disappointed with their actions, with their character, with what has taken place. If there's righteous anger, then there's also certainly unrighteous anger. It's out of control. It's based on pride, vanity, hatred, malice, revenge. It festers to the point that the little things begin to take over your life and your well-being, and it spirals out of control. So Jesus uses a few examples, and he says, whenever you call someone a fool, whenever you show contempt for another person, it's more than just words that are shared, but it's the way in which you express contempt and almost lessen the value of someone who's made in God's image. He goes on to amplify it with the idea that the guy who's going to church and he places this offering, but yet he still has something against somebody. To go and, and reconcile first and then come and lay his offering in the plate. The second of two people who are on their way to court. And Jesus says, you want to settle this as quickly as you can, even before you get there where someone else determines your fate. Handle things between one another. 
before there's intervention. The main point is simple. You have to deal with it, and you have to deal with it now. That there's urgency, there's ownership inside of dealing with our anger. You see, the myth of, of anger is that it's control. That somehow if I hold on to this, if I let it go, I'm letting you off the hook. If I hold on to it, you are still responsible. You can't get away with it. I haven't forgotten it. But you and I both know that unaddressed anger, the primary person that affects is not the person that you're angry with. The primary person that affects is you. Because before you know it, you're in a separate conversation with someone unrelated to this issue, and something comes out of you. There's an attitude. There's a word. There's, there's, there's something that comes out inside of that moment that had nothing to do with them, but you're carrying it forward from the previous situation. It affects all of our relationships. You know what bothers me sometimes when I'm mad at someone and they have absolutely no idea? So I'm even doubly mad that I have to explain to you why I'm mad at you. <laughs> the problem at that point is not really with that person. It's inside of me. It affects your ability to worship. I think that that's why Jesus brings it to the place of worship and says, how is it possible even to walk down with your offering when you know that things aren't right with you and somebody else? And their thought is, isn't my offering between me and God, isn't it possible for me and God to be okay even when me and somebody else aren't okay? Doesn't God welcome me just as I am and doesn't expect me to be perfect and, and God welcomes me even when things are not so good in every other aspect of my life? While all that's true, I think what Jesus wants to drive at is don't let there be a dichotomy between who you are with God. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. I raise my hands in worship. I, you know, I write out a check. I, I drop it in the offering plate in such a way that people around me see it. Like, they know that things are going like, well in that area, but over here things are a mess. Because if we are salt and light that he's already talked about, if he's not come to abolish love to fulfill it and to drive it deeper inside of us, then shouldn't the one that we worship and the depth of our relationship with Christ affect the breadth and the healthiness of our relationships here on earth? Does it mean that everybody's going to like me? No. Does it mean that I'm going to always do right and get along with everybody and always do the right thing and everything's going to go perfectly? No. But it means there's a connection between the two, and when I allow them to be disconnected, thinking that I can just come and worship and everything's fine, but I can still just be angry and upset and a bear to be around, you're not representing the one who lives inside of your heart. It's your responsibility to deal with it. Whether it's your fault or not, you have to deal with the anger that's inside of your heart. Don't wait until it spills over into other areas of your life. It may restore the relationship or it may, may not, but at least God is able to bring an aspect of healing inside of that area inside of your life. So before we move on and talk about lust, which, how's that for a good transition in church? <laughs> Let me ask you a couple of questions. How often do you find yourself angry at someone or something? How often? Because the great lie we tell ourselves is this is just what happens inside of life. My life is fast-paced. I've got a lot of things going on. Certainly I'm going to be angry a time or two. But let me ask, what percentage of your day what percentage of your time, how often do you find yourself angry, discontent, unsettled, 
conflict with somebody around you. Because if that begins to tip the scale inside of your life, maybe there's a problem that's in there. If your life is dominated by that emotion, by that set of feelings, maybe there's something that needs to be dealt with. Secondly, let me ask, how effective do you think you are at dealing with it? How quickly do you resolve differences? Is the ledger sheet of how many people owe you, because that's what anger is, right, is you owe me. How long is your ledger sheet? Not just how often are you angry, but how often can you go and cross one of those off because you've dealt with it and you've made peace. And whether a relationship is restored or not, at least I'm done with that. Or do you find that the list just gets longer and longer and you, there's a part of you deep down inside that it feels better when you got a long list because if I have a longer list than the people around me of all these people who owe me, that must put me in the place of being right. Three, what unresolved anger from your past still pops up at odd times and affects your present. What unresolved anger or situation from your past continues to pop up and affect your present? Let's be people who deal with anger. Don't let it fester. Jesus says it's important to the point it affects your relationships, it even affects your worship if we don't deal with these things. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So if you thought anger was the awkward part of the message this morning, now we move on to talk about this aspect of of lust that Jesus talks about adultery and again pushes it to the very inside. It's rudimentary cause, that, that thing that begins even in the aspect of lust. If somebody ever says to you the Bible is boring, the Bible is not relevant, have them read Matthew chapter 5 beginning with these two uh, sections that we're reading here today. This is commandment number seven. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Commandment number seven, don't commit adultery. Jesus is not beginning with, again, the, the myths, the lies. He's going right to the big ten, the top ten, and saying even these things that are chiseled in stone that mark who we are as a people, it's possible that we distort it. Not that that commandment is not true, but you think you can just check the box, have it murdered, haven't had an affair, check move on but Jesus says that law that was meant to be written on your heart that we talked about last week in Jeremiah 31 that law that was meant to be written on your heart should make a difference not just in the outermost actions of your life but to the deepest motives and character and heart commandment number 10 of the 10 commandments talks about not coveting your neighbor's wife so this aspect is covered here even in the 10 commandments it wasn't just left you shouldn't commit adultery, but as it moves on through commandment number 10, you shouldn't covet something that belongs to your neighbor. And so this has somewhat already been covered there. And this is an inclusive statement. This is not just geared towards married men about married women. This is about uh, husbands. This is about wives. This is about those who aren't married yet, about widowed, about widowers, uh, that your thought life matters, that the things that you think about, not just the things that you do, 
The things you think about matter. All right, so what does it mean to look lustfully um, at somebody? And uh, again, this is the point everybody squirms in their, ch their chair a little bit. That's, that's all right. I'm the person who, who's up here. Um, let me tell you what it's not. It's not seeing someone else. You don't walk through life with the things, you know, that they put on the horses, these blinders, you know, that the only person I'm ever going to no notice inside of my life is my wife. It's not noticing. It's not seeing somebody. It's not even thinking that someone else is attractive. You can notice beauty. Uh, you can think that someone else is attractive. But I think what scripture begins to call lust is when things begin to move from a noticing or from a finding of attraction to something that begins to take root inside of your, your mind's eye that you begin to think about, you begin to focus on, you become uh, fantasized with a particular person and a line is crossed. And the interesting thing, and our fall sermon series is going to delve into to the idea of apologetics and how we uh, know that, that certain things are, are true and we're going to tackle difficult questions. But one of the things I was reading this past week, C.S. Lewis said that you don't have to convince me that there's a God, just show me any conversation around a dinner table where somebody appeals to a standard inside of the room. You shouldn't take that from me, it's mine. You should not do this for me. He said even with two and three-year-olds, there's this sense of justice that begins to take shape that you can't possibly wrong me, it's not just because that makes me sad, but because there's a standard of what is right and what is wrong. C.S. Lewis says there's something deep inside of us that knows when a line has been crossed. And even though it's possible for sin to kind of distort and, and to, you know, we begin to call things that are evil, we begin to call good, and we begin to distort God's reality, C.S. Lewis says deep inside of every one of us is that little yearning that says, this is not good. This is not right. And so inside of your conscience, conscience, the Holy Spirit begins to speak. The Holy Spirit begins to give direction inside of your life. Let me just make this a little bit more practical, though, something that's been, been helpful for me to think about, and it's called kind of the third look. The, the first look is when you notice something. The second look is kind of the double take that draws your attention back to that thing that you've seen. But a great many things in life begin to cross the line when it gets to that third look. Because the third look is not just the quick double take or the first notice, but when I'm choosing to then direct my attention and to, to devote my thought then to that thing that I'm turning back to a third time. The third look is the one that is most dangerous. Begins to move things, your mind starts running, and the danger zone is quickly coming up. Lust is planning, it's plotting, it's David and Bathsheba when on the rooftop he sees and he doesn't turn away and then he begins to think, how is it that I could possibly have this woman to myself regardless of the consequences? Because after all, I should get what I want. It's the fantasizing, it's the what if scenario. It's the carrying out inside of your mind whether it ever germinates to action inside of our body or not, it's that which is already taking place inside of our minds. It's interesting that not only here, but elsewhere throughout scripture, Jesus, 11 times in the book of Matthew, uses the phrase, cause to stumble. And so what Jesus is most interested in is not that we check the box of, haven't had an affair, haven't killed anybody, I'm good, but what are the things that I'm allowing to cause me to stumble, or what are the things that I 
and participating in that cause somebody else to stumble, the causing to stumble speaks to the fact that there's a subtlety. A big steel beam that I run into is not a stumble. A stumble is something that begins with a little pothole here or a slippery spot there or a tripping hazard over here. And in that subtlety, something begins to happen or has the capacity to happen inside of our lives if we're not vigilant, if we're not intentional. And so I read something this week that the adultery of the eyes leads to adultery of the heart, leads to an adultery of the body. That what begins with the eyes quickly moves to the brain and to the heart and then perhaps eventually to the body, but it begins with what I see and what I think about. So Jesus' solution, we're going to pass the offering plate around and just pop out your eyeball if that's been you this week, throw it in the offering plate, throw it in the basket, we don't want to tarnish the offering plates. Uh, we'll assist anybody in the back with cutting off a, a hand or a foot later if that's something that you want to do as well. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking literal here, although there have been groups throughout the history of the church who have gone towards this self-mutilation, this idea that there's such rigorous denial inside of my spiritual life that it causes me to endure physical pain or hardship. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think what he's pointing to is that, again, just like with anger, we have to take intentional ownership of the situation and to do something about it. but also that there has to be this ruthless self-denial. This action that takes place where, where Paul begins to pick up in the book of Colossians and elsewhere in the New Testament, put to death, therefore, the things that are leading towards the decay of your life. If you hang out with death-bringing things, it'll bring death inside of your life. If you surround your life with life-bringing things, it'll bring life into your life. And so put to death, therefore, the things that are causing you to stumble. That's why we go through the house and we throw out all the, all the sweets when you're starting a diet. That's why we cut off all contact with people who are unhealthy and toxic inside of our lives because it's not possible to just have a little bit. That's why we go past the point of a infection when something is cut out or something is treated because to take a safeguard, we even go beyond the extent of what the problem is take care of it once and for all. But the problem is in our moral lives, we dance around the edge. I can solve enough of the problem to feel safe, but I don't know if I want to completely eradicate it inside of my life. We permit a thought here and a glance there and an image there, an unhealthy conversation here or there, and before we know it, we stand right in the middle of lust. Sometimes even worse than just a thought. And it erodes trusts, and it ruins marriages, and it even has the capacity to slowly choke out the voice of God inside of your life. So just like with anger, we take action. To, to own it, to, to do, do it now, to do something different. And so things like accountability groups and, and, and prayer partners are great if we're willing to be honest. Programs on your computer and safeguards inside of your life to to guard what comes in through your eyes, to your brain, to your heart, are great, but only if we actually follow through and submit yourself to it. What's not okay is asking how far is good enough, how far can I go, how much is permissible, 
but instead we start to build a system around us where an alarm goes off inside of our minds, or maybe a literal alarm goes off somewhere inside of our life when we know that we walk into the danger zone. And again, back to C.S. Lewis, you know. You know when you walk into the danger zone. All right, so before we go, why would Jesus capture these two things back to back or just bring it a little bit closer to home? Why would Mike and Steve put these two things together today? Is it just to kind of pocket it so we get it all out of the way once? Um, I think there's some things that we can collectively with both anger and lust look at. The first is that how you see people, anger, lust, how, how you see people matters because each and every person you meet is made in the image of God, loved by him and created with a purpose. Every person that you meet, every person that you think about, whether in a good way or a not so good way, that matters because of who they are. They're made in the image of God, loved by him and created with a purpose. And while we never think about this, when you enter into a murderous thought inside of your heart or an adulterous thought inside of your heart, indirectly or directly, you are saying they really don't matter as much as God thinks that they matter. I determine the value of who they are in terms of my mind and my heart. It makes a difference, though, who made something. If I sketched out a painting, not only would it not be very good, but it would not be worth very much. But for a prized artist, and oddly enough, if that artist has passed away, you know, all of a sudden that value skyrockets. Let me just give you a couple things that you probably wouldn't think about. John Lennon's tooth that he gave to someone to be able to give to her daughter. It's some type of weird thing that only John Lennon would do. Sold for $31,200. My kid's teeth sold for a dollar. <laughs> and I don't know why I bought it, but uh, that's, that's... William Shatner's kidney stone sold for $25,000. A piece of Justin Bieber's hair sold for $40,000. A jar of air that surrendered Angelina, Jolie, and Brad Pitt even sold for $523 because it's celebrity air. But seriously, though, if you look at artwork, if you look at guitars, a guitar that was Jimi Hendrix sells for a bit more than a brand new one of that same model coming from the factory because it was Jimi Hendrix's guitar. There's way more at stake than your purity in this, but what you say about the value and worth of somebody else inside of your mind based on how you think about that other person, whether you like them or not, that's someone made in the image of God, created by him, loved by him, with purpose and value inside of their life. We live in a culture dominated by permissiveness and liberty and selfish ambition, and I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt or affect somebody else. And it's as if inside of our world, if you have motive, if you have action, if you have consequence, we make decisions based on here. What are the consequences and can I live with the consequences? If I can live with the consequences, then it makes the action okay and who cares about the motive? Consequence okay, do the action, forget about the motive, it doesn't matter. But Jesus, again, as he wants to drive this differently, religion should just not be where you show up on Sunday morning or the box that you check on an application of what your religious preference is, but it sh should drive so deep into the heart of who you are that motive is primary and comes first and is the most important thing about you. That then determines your actions and then we can give the consequences 
to God. It's a complete reversal of how our world wants to live. Not consequence first, but motive and intent first. We've been saying this for a few weeks now, beginning with the Beatitudes. This is who you want to be. This is who you want to be. This is how you want to live your life. And the reason I know that, it's because it's who you want to be around. It's who you want to work for. It's who you want to allow your daughter to get in the car with and go out on the date with. It's who you want to sit on the sidelines at a game with. Nobody likes to hang out with the out-of-control angry jerk, with the person who's always bitter and nasty with a complaint about somebody. People may tolerate, people may love you and love you deeply, but you are not very fun to be around when that's you, so don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Nobody wants to hang out or be around the creepy guy who just stares. Or the person who always wants to have that off-color joke that to try to draw a laugh and to make somebody red in the room. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Andy Stanley had a, a sermon series that became a small group curriculum that came out called Guardrails. And he said the purpose of a guardrail is you don't set the guardrail up in the danger zone. You set the guardrail up back before the danger zone. Because if you drive around the, the corner and you go off the cliff and halfway down the mountainside you hit a guardrail, that has done very little to help you inside of that moment. But if a foot or two before the, the edge, there's a guardrail that if you hit it and you dent your car, at least it saves you from going over the cliff, then that guardrail means the world to you inside of that moment. You set the guardrail back from the danger zone. And the very presence of it the very presence of the guardrail there heightens your awareness, increases your sensitivity to the fact that there is danger on the other side of it. So let me ask you, we've already talked about anger as well in the area of, of lust and your thought life. Do you have guardrails in place? Sometimes if we put guardrails in place, it's almost like we're admitting that we have a need outside of ourselves, and we would rather not do that. Because if I need to put this guardrail in place, it must mean that I'm like not where I should be, that I'm not doing things right. When in reality, the presence of guardrails inside of your life speaks volumes about how much you want to think as your Heavenly Father wants you to think. So maybe today, not just evaluating is there a situation where I'm in the middle of lust or I'm in the middle of anger, maybe it's time to just evaluate our guardrails. Am I beginning to allow more and more into my life that doesn't need to be there? And is it time to move the guardrail back a little bit further from the edge? It's your responsibility to deal with it. It's your responsibility to deal with it now. So thanks for coming on the day that we talked about anger and we talked about lust. There's safer topics coming in weeks ahead, so please come back and join us again. Let me just ask this morning, where is God speaking and nudging inside of your heart? Don't just check the box and say, if I haven't killed anybody or I haven't committed an affair, I'm good. Go a little bit deeper. Where are the places where anger gets a foothold inside of my life? Where my thought life is out of control and lust gets a foothold inside of my life? And what is God calling me today to do about it? Let's pray together.
Let me ask you just for a second to think about the, both of these areas inside of your life. And it's, it's possible that both are in great shape. It's possible that both are out of control. It's possible that maybe there's an area or two that you can think you can think about this morning that brings chaos inside of your life. What's God calling you to today? Do you need guardrails? Do you need to practice righteous anger for the things that need your attention and to deal with some of the unrighteous anger that pops up? Is there something about your thought life that you've unintentionally given permission to inside of your life that doesn't need to be there? Jesus came to take the external and to move it internal. To take our fixation on rules and drive it further into the character. To go way beyond merely our behaviors to our motives. And so Jesus today, whether it's inside of these areas or something else, we want to be people who don't just dance along the edges, but who invite you to come to the very depths of what we think about, what we really want, how we make decisions, the things we allow our mind to entertain. And we would ask that you would bring your purity to the deepest parts of who we are. Not so that we can feel holier than the person next to us, not so that we can check off the God box that somehow you love us more, not any of that. But because you came not just to save our souls to be in eternity with you, but you've come to make a difference even to the point that you can cleanse our hearts. So God, in the midst of these two tough topics today, I pray, Lord, that you would speak, that we would listen, and that we would respond. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior Jesus, the only one who can do something about these areas inside of our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.